Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain where they could be alone. There, in their presence, he was transfigured. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them. They were talking with him. Then Peter spoke to Jesus. Lord, he said, it is wonderful for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three turns here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when suddenly a bright cloud covered them with shadow, and from the cloud there came a voice which said, This is my son, the beloved. He enjoys my favor. Listen to him. When they heard this, the disciples fell on their faces, overcome with fear. But Jesus came up and touched them. Stand up, he said, do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one but only Jesus. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus gave them this order, tell no one about the vision, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So we have here the Gospel of the Transfiguration, which we always have on the second Sunday of Lent. Every, every year we have this Gospel on the second Sunday of Lent, right after the temptation. So you can see how wonderful, how amazing this is after having been in the desert with the devil and the fasting and the temptations and the trials we're now on top of the mountain with jesus contemplating his face contemplating his life so what about the literal meaning of this gospel what questions can we ask about it where are we well we're in matthew 17 matthew has 28 chapters so it's it's you know middle end of matthew up a high mountain. We are up a high mountain. Jesus took them up a high mountain. So it could be Mount Tabor, which is classically reckoned to be the one, or it could be possibly Mount Hermon, which is north in Galilee. We don't really know. But classically, Tabor is reckoned to be the Mount of the Transfiguration. When in the Gospel is this taking place? It's taking place after Peter's profession of faith. In Matthew 16, which is just before the chapter 17 with the Transfiguration, but just before, in Matthew 16, we have first the profession of faith of Peter. Who do you say the son of, that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
So Peter makes a profession of faith in the name of the apostles. Speaks in their name and he proclaims this faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now they've had evidence about this. They have they had miracles. They had the teaching of Jesus. But essentially they're putting their faith in, in, in Jesus to an extent that no one else around them is. And so that's why blessed are you, Simon Barjuna. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in his heaven. So this knowledge of faith that Peter has just expressed, supernatural. And then Jesus gives him the power, the key. And then immediately after that, after having, if you want, brought Peter to a point where Peter can express his faith in his divinity, he was a Christ, the son of the living God. God's presence among us. Jesus then foretells his passion for the first time. He probably waited for that time to, to actually reveal to, to, to his apostles what would happen to him because this is so shocking. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. And on the third day be raised, his death and resurrection. And of course, the, the apostles and Peter particularly can't cope with it. But Jesus rebukes him, tells him off, and then tells about what it means to be a disciple. And how, in fact, in these very lines that Jesus says, how he himself is about to give his life. He's about to lose his life in order to gain ours, if you want. And then he ends with this mysterious, uh, with these mysterious lines. For telling his glory, the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every man for what he has done. So telling of the last judgment, telling, telling of his glory. And then this mysterious life, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming. Very mysterious. And here we have it. Jesus took with him peace and death. Six days after, that's the line that comes right, right up. If you want, this transfiguration is the fulfilling of this line. Some standing here who will not face death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, this is fulfilled in the transfiguration. This is fulfilled when, 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 when Jesus is transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John. We'll have a full taste, if you want, of the kingdom of God in that instant on the mount. So that's when it happened. Uh, what is interesting as well is that after they come down from the mountain, there's a, a, a slight bit of discussion about Elijah, and then Jesus announces again his passion, the second announce of his passion. All in all, Jesus tells of his passion to come three times to his disciples in every one of the synoptic gospels, Luke, Mark, and Matthew. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you have... so. This, the transfiguration comes in the middle of the first announce and the second announce. So you, if you want, you have the glory between the death, and we have to hold it all together. And Jesus is asking his disciples to hold it all, all together. And of course, they, 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 they're not able to do so, because when it actually happens, they, they completely lose it and, and, and seem to, to not remember any of the things that Jesus had told them. So... But what happens in this particular instance on the mountain between those two announcers of the passion, between this, this prophecy, double prophecy of 
the son of man will be going to Jerusalem, will be handed down and, and will be killed and then will rise again. Jesus is revealed in glory. This is what the transfiguration is about. It's the revelation of who Jesus actually is to the chosen few, the James and John. And Jesus both reveals and is revealed because he, he reveals himself. He's alone standing there and suddenly he's shining out, uh, which is the text we can see um, in the text. In their presence, he was transfigured. His, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as whatever light. But he's alone there, so he reveals himself, if you want, his true self. And then he's revealed as well. This is my son, the beloved. He's revealed by the father. He's revealed by the voice of the father. So that's what happens. The transfiguration is a manifestation, a revelation of, of Jesus as the Messiah, as the son of the father. We have certain, the, the whole episode of the transfiguration, we have Jesus, of course, who is the center, we call Peter, James, John, who are witnesses here on earth. Moses and Elijah, who come up from the dead, supposedly, and the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, of course, is not named in the in the scripture, but he's manifested essentially in the bright cloud. He's transfigured. What does transfigured mean? It means transformed, but not quite, because he's still the same. A real epiphany, a manifestation, a revelation of something that is not normally seen about him. But his figure, his, his countenance changes. So it is a miraculous, if you want, episode. Why is this happening? Why is Jesus taking the three apostles up the mountain to prepare them for his passion and resurrection? And perhaps to prepare them as well for their passion and resurrection. Jesus come, takes them up and prepares them. Now, let's look a bit more at this idea of divine revelation, of epiphany, of manifestation, which comes from, from looking at the text. First of all, we have the high mountain. Now, the high mountain is a classic place of revelation. When God reveals himself, it's always up a mountain from the beginning. Abraham with the sacrifice of Isaac was on the mountain. We've got Moses on Mount Sinai when he talked to God face to face, he was on the mountain. You have Elijah on Mount Carmel and then Mount Tabor. You have the Sermon on the Mount, which we have seen for, you know, for so many uh, Sundays so far in ordinary time just before Lent, where Jesus reveals the truth of the kingdom of God to his disciples on the mountain. We have, of course, the mountain of the transfiguration. We have also the mountain of the passion, the mountain of Gethsemane. We have the mountain of uh, the ascension. And we have as well, throughout the Old Testament, from the time of King David, Mount Zion. Mount Zion is spoken of by the prophets, it's spoken of in the Psalms. It's Mount Zion is Jerusalem. And it's in fact one particular hill in Jerusalem, but it's the place where God comes to meet his people. Jerusalem itself is on the height. And Jerusalem is the city of God, the city where you have the temple of God, the temple of the presence of God. 
the God, if you want, the, the, why the mountain, the mountain is the highest place where God meets with us, if you want. We have to climb up in order to meet with God. He comes down. All this idea of mountain, when Jesus starts taking people to climb a mountain, it means something big is going to happen, basically. It, it's going to be a revelation of God. The light of the world. Now, Jesus said of himself in the Gospel of St. John, I am the light of the world. He said it of his disciples in, uh, in, on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew, you are the light of the world. But here we see him as the light of the world. He reveals himself as the light of the world. In their presence, he was transfigured. transfigured. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light, as white as the sun. So he's manifested in all his radiance. And in two ways, this indicates both his divinity, that the, the God is light, there is no darkness in him, and in fact, the first thing he creates is light. But also it reveals his humanity untainted by sin. The heart of Jesus is all pure. It's all full of goodness and love. And, and so he, he truly is the light of the world. And he calls us to share in his light. And this is what we, you know, when we uh, come up on Easter Saturday, Saturday Vigil, Holy Saturday, we come up in the night and we light the fire and then we take our candles and we we all, you know, the, the whole place is illuminate, illuminated from the Paschal candle. We receive our light from his light. This is a little bit of an experience of the transfiguration, if you want. It's the experience of the resurrection. The light has defeated the darkness. It's not just a a spooky event, that transfiguration. It's not just a, like a funny thing suddenly happening for no reason. What Jesus manifests to us is not only who he is in his divinity, but it's also who we are meant to be in our humanity. It has to do with the future. It has to do with our future life, the future promise, what we are meant to be. So Jesus is a radiant, and then you have suddenly Moses and Elijah turn up admittedly from the dead. But what is interesting about Moses and Elijah is that neither of them is said to really have died. Elijah was taken up in a chariot to heaven, and Moses mysteriously disappeared on top of Mount Nebo, never to be found again. We could think, well, they're not really dead, they're alive in God. God has taken them up. Why would God take them up? Because those two who represent with Elijah the prophets and who with Moses the law were some of the two people most open to God in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Uh, with the little that they had, because they didn't have Jesus then, they managed to grow a great deal and to be really the messengers of God in the world. For the people of Israel. So they were both very close friends with God. Why are they here? Well, they represent, as I said, the law and the prophets, Moses the law, Elijah the prophets. And they are here standing with Jesus, talking with Jesus. 
to really tell us and tell the Jews and tell the people who would listen to the gospel and hear the gospel of Matthew and read the gospel of Matthew that in Jesus the law and the prophets have been fulfilled. Jesus is the one that Moses and Elijah were looking forward to. If Jesus had fulfilled all the promises of God. More than that, Moses and Elijah are both here because finally for them personally, the transfiguration of Jesus fulfills a dream. It fulfills a desire they had and both expressed. And this desire is present, we can find it in the scripture with Moses, first of all, these passages from Exodus. So again, the passages from Exodus are very similar from the account of the transfiguration. Moses goes up the mountain, the cloud covers the mountain. So remember the cloud is the presence of the Holy Spirit. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Of course, that reminds us of Jesus who was in the desert 40 days and 40 nights. And then Moses has this prayer to God. I pray thee, show me thy glory. What Moses is really asking, I want to see your face. I want to see your face. And God said, I can, I'll do all I can. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Thus he said, you cannot see my face. For no man, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand upon the rock. And while my glory passes, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses was begging God to show himself his face to him. Of course. We have to realize this is a very ancient text where God is made to talk like a man, but God, we know, has no face and arm and hand and back because God is not material. And that's partly why we can't see him. But we can't, as mere creature, behold the fullness of God's glory. That's completely beyond our capacity. We cannot see God. And here, it is in the transfiguration that the dream, the wish, the prayer of Moses is answered. They were talking with Moses and Elijah appeared to them. They were talking with him. When Moses comes on the mountain, he sees the face of God. Jesus is the face of the Father. Jesus, when we see Jesus, we see God, we see the Father. If you want, God has condescended he has come down he has taken on our countenance he has assumed our humanity so that we he puts himself at our level so we can really enter into a friendship with him that's reciprocal so we can see his face just as he sees ours we can look at him as he looks at us in jesus 
And so in Jesus Christ, God fulfills the prayer of Moses. And it was a similar prayer that Elijah had as well. And then when Moses comes down the mountain, it's shining with the light of God. Is exactly what should happen to us when we've been talking with Jesus in prayer. Uh, shining with the light of God. And then in Elijah's case, it's in the book of Kings, first King. And Elijah went in the strength of that for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And then he came to a cave with the cleft of the rock and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, Why are you, what are you doing here, Elijah? And you have this whole dialogue, and Elijah just basically moans. And then, uh, and then God, it's not really the prayer of Elijah, but God decides to show himself to him. And he shows himself to him, not in the wind and not, not in, the, in the earthquake and not in the fire, but in the still small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went and stood out at the tent at the entrance of the cave. Why is Elijah wrapping his face in his mantle? Because you cannot see the living God and live. And so when they stand in the presence of God, both Moses and Elijah have to turn away because we can't stand in the presence of God normally. We are mere creature, we are sinners, and God is our creator, is holy, and there is no, although, although God does reveal himself, it is only in the incarnation in Jesus that he makes himself And so here again, the dream of Elijah is fulfilled. And so God is appearing to them in Jesus in a way that wasn't even possible before. So Moses and Elijah appear. And then we have this mysterious passage with three tents where, where Peter looks like he's doing something silly again. And it's, it's all very odd. Moses and Elijah appear. Then Peter spoke to Jesus. I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Well, first of all, Peter is obviously so happy to be here. He wants to stay. He doesn't want them to go. This is so good. This is so wonderful to be on the mountain with God, with Jesus, with Moses, with Elijah. It's great. Let's stay here. Let's make sure that. So that's, yeah, that's the first sort of understanding we can get from that extraordinary request. But what it, what it also would remind a good Jew at the time of Matthew is the Feast of Booth, the Feast of Tabernacle, because the word for tent is tabernacle. And that word tabernacle is what was used in the desert for 40 years to, to house the tables of the law, to house the presence of God among the people. I have a reference here from scripture uh, about the tabernacle, about the tent that is set up in the desert. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle. So the cloud, again, the Holy Spirit, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was continually. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel encamped. So you have this tabernacle going with them with that cloud. 
And this is the presence of God. If you want this, we have to bear this in mind when Peter is saying his bit, because this is really what he refers to. And moreover, the Israelites will celebrate every year the Feast of Tabernacles to remind themselves of their time in the desert. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. So they would make themselves stand so that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so this really refers to, to, to that, that sort of, that event, the, the, this tabernacle in the desert, the Feast of Tents. And what does it say? Well, it says that Peter is no fool, really, and he does recognize that this is the presence of God among them. And so because the presence of God is among them, they need to make a tent. They need to make a tabernacle. And in fact, God in, in Jesus sets up his tent among us. So Peter actually recognizes very keenly what is in front of him and uses the language and the, the concept, the culture that he has in order to, to, to refer to it, to, to, um, to respond to it. But he's cut off, and that's wonderful. He's cut off by God, cut off by the Father. He was still speaking when suddenly a bright cloud covered them with shadow. Now that bright cloud, in some way, uh, instead of cutting off Peter, it sort of confirms, yes, this is the presence of God. You're right. The bright cloud with the tent, the bright cloud with Moses, the bright cloud with Elijah, it's all that little, you know, that cloud is really the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have it in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, particularly the number 697, cloud and light. These two images occur together in the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. So we see, uh, with reference to Mount Sinai, the tent of meeting, which is the, the tent, the tabernacle in the desert, Solomon at the dedication of the temple, and then we have this cloud. The Spirit comes upon the Virgin Mary and overshadows her so that she might conceive and give birth to Jesus. And on the mountain of transfiguration, the spirit in the cloud came and overshadowed Jesus, Moses, Eli and Elijah, Peter, James, and John. And the voice came out of it. And finally, the cloud comes back at the ascension to take Jesus away from the sight of his disciples. So you see how that cloud is no sort of weather cloud, but it, it really is a, a divine manifestation. And, and from the cloud came the voice. Now the voice is obviously the voice of the father because he, he reveals his son. And so we have here the presence of the Trinity, the cloud, the voice, just as we had at baptism with the same words coming from the father, the, the voice, the son, and the dove of the Holy Spirit, which helps us to, to distinguish between the Holy Spirit which can't be seen and his manifestations, which can be different cloud or dove, and so that we don't worship a dove or a cloud. But these are the ways in which the Holy Spirit shows himself to be present to us because he's invisible. So he needs a bit of a visibility factor so that we can know that he's there. And so you have these people, three disciples, two prophets, who supposedly are dead, 
in the presence of God, the blessed trinity of the mount. So of course, when they hear, heard this, the disciples fell onto their faces overcome with fear. Yes, that's what you do in the presence of God. You fall on your face. Again, this idea of not being to see God face to face, of having to, to hide ourselves from God uh, in fear. And here is the lovely line, but Jesus came up and touched them. Jesus came up and touched them. In the Old Testament, that wasn't possible. But Jesus, who is God, the word in the flesh, in our humanity, can touch us. He comes close to us. He's at, he has come close to us, and he can come close, as close as we will allow him to. And he comes close and he touches them. Stand up, he said, do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one but only Jesus. Why? Because Jesus himself is the whole point of this whole manifestation. He is the center of it. He is the reason why he was radiant with light. He's the reason why Moses and Elijah appeared. He's the reason why the Father spoke and the Spirit came, to manifest him, to reveal him, to point to him, so that the disciples would put their faith in him, to prepare them for what was going to happen to him, and also to prepare them for what was going to happen to them as well. Uh, so that's really the heart of the transfiguration, is Jesus himself is the Son, so close, so near to us, and yet manifested in all his glory as the word of God, the Son of God. So that's exactly what happens when we, you know, this is really, this finding God, this is it. The heart of this passage is about Jesus, because in Jesus we see the face of God. We see the face of God. He is the light that comes into the world from the Father. He is the fulfillment of all the promises, of all the desires of Israel expressed in Moses and Elijah. Finally, Moses and Elijah are able to see God face to face when they speak with Jesus. And their friendship with Jesus, their, their relationship with Jesus, uh, you know, both of them were, were, were told would speak to God as with a friend, it was said of them. Well, that friendship with God that they had and was recounted, you know, thousands of years ago in the Old Testament is none other than the friendship they currently have with Jesus. It's the same reality, because Jesus is the word of the Father. The Son is revealed most of all by the Father. Jesus is revealed by the Father. In these two events, baptism and transfiguration are the only two events where we have this full manifestation of the Holy Trinity and where the Father Actually, there's one another instance in John where the Father speaks to the Son in his prayer, and that voice can be heard by everyone in John 12. But in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are the two events where the, where the voice of the Father can be heard, baptism and transfiguration. What about us? What does this passage tell us about ourselves? And here we have all the protagonists. It tells us we are made for God. You know, climbing that mountain 
which can be an, an image of our life, really, of our earthly pilgrimage, seeking for God. Uh, this is what we're made for, that contemplation of God. Now, a lot of people might deny it and say, well, I have no interest in God, I, have no, I don't even believe in God. But really, that desire for God, which is a desire for happiness, a desire for love, is written in our hearts. The desire for God is written in the human heart. That's a quote from the Catechism. It's there. It's in us. It's a desire for love, a desire for, for eternity, for, for this happiness that never ends, that we know we can't have in this life, and that's what makes us bitter. And, and you know. But really, it's there. And here it is fulfilled in Jesus. It also tells us that we have a future. Because when we look at Jesus transfigured, it's a revelation of the glory of his resurrection. What we see in the transfiguration, if you want, is a, is a glimpse into his glorified faith, a glimpse into his glorified body after his passion, after his resurrection. And if we see him as a glorified human being, as it were, because in his humanity, he's shining out. This is also what we are called to be, in union with him. This is our hope, that death is not the end. And of course, Jesus never sort of escapes death or, or, or tries to push death aside. In fact, you know, death is mentioned, as I said at the beginning, before and after the transfiguration. It's very clear, I am going to die in Jerusalem. I'm going to be put to death. But do not be afraid. Here I am. This is the point. This is a purpose. This is where I'm eventually leading you to. If you want, the, reaching the top of the high mountain of the transfiguration is an image of the finality of the whole of our life. The transfiguration is where we're heading to. And it's a, a reminder on our way of our final destiny. And that's really why we have this feast this uh, gospel in Lent to remind us where we're going, where we're heading. We're not doing penance for the sake of it. We're not fasting because it's, you know, it's such a great thing to do in and for itself. We're doing it for a purpose. Jesus is not going to Jerusalem in order to die and that's it. He's going to Jerusalem to die and rise again. The whole purpose of Lent, the whole purpose of the Passion is precisely to conquer, to conquer death and to come out in a new source of life, and, and, a life that is then um, untouched by the possibility of sin, untouched by the possibility of death, untouched by the possibility of suffering. And this is exactly what the Transfiguration is telling us. The Transfiguration is telling us where we're going. It's giving us a glimpse of our And that's something really to bear in mind. Because that's the source of our hope, the reason why we carry on doing the things we do, the reason why we carry on going to church, the reason why we carry on going to confession, the reason why we believe all these things. We have a hope. And this hope has been made manifest in Jesus. And we have witnesses, we have evidence. We're not fools. We have put our trust in him. And he has died and risen from the dead. And these people who stand around him are witnesses of it. 
And finally, the church. Where is the church? The church is the whole lot. The church is the whole picture. The church is the whole body of Christ, Christ the head and the members, living and dead. That's the church. The church here on earth and the church in glory. The past, the present and the future. And all of it, the whole church is awaiting the glory that is to come at the end of time. So again, the transfiguration is also has also uh, strong uh, links with the final revelation, the end of time. It tells us again, as I said, where we're going, not just individually in our own little life when we meet death, but it tells us about the resurrection of, of the body. You know, in the in the Apostles' Creed, we, we proclaim, I believe in the resurrection of the body. What evidence do we have to believe in it? We have Jesus. That's he's risen in the body. And why is he risen in the body? Because we're he wants us to be risen in the body. He wants us to be who we are. And we are a unity of body and soul. This is the plan for us as it is. And, and as he passed through it, so he's inviting us to pass through it as well with him. So his future is our future. And his future on the Mount of Transfiguration is, is revealed to us so that we know where we're going. So that when finally the trials of the passion happen, we're not stricken with fear and doubt, and we don't lose faith. That's really the whole point of it. To strengthen our faith on the path to Easter. 